There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Wednesday morning, the 3rd of May. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m., this is Michael Reed on LMFM. Energy prices need to fall quicker. That's the view of a frustrated Minister for the Environment. Eamon Ryan says he's met with energy companies to ask why bills are still so high, while wholesale gas prices have dropped significantly and are continuing to fall in price. The Green Party leader made his remarks after another government minister, Michael McGrath, said energy companies need to explain why bills are not coming down and ahead of a Sinn Féin private member's motion which will be debated in the Dáil this evening. That motion calls for a windfall tax on the super profits of energy companies for a reduction in electricity prices to what they were before the war in Ukraine and to cap them at that level as is the case in other European countries to reverse the increase in carbon tax and to introduce new regulatory powers for the CRU. The motion is being tabled by Sinn Féin's Darren O'Rourke, who is his party spokesperson on the Environment and Climate Action and a TD for Mead East. He's on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Darren O'Rourke, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I'm not sure if there's going to be much argument with your motion this evening, given what two government ministers have said in the last couple of days. And very hard to understand why bills are so high when wholesale prices are are dropping the way they are. Yeah, absolutely, and it, it remains to be seen. Um, it will usually just be a, a few hours before the motion is debated, and it's to be debated at, at half five today um, before we'd see a counter motion uh, from from government. So it, it remains to be seen whether whether they will bring uh, uh, such a counter motion. I I I, um, I heard the ministers uh, over over recent weeks and months, and indeed Fine Gael went to the extent of carrying out an online petition um, uh, calling for, for energy companies to reduce their prices. Um, but it, it seems like they're acting as commentators uh, instead of acting like a government and acting like ministers, because, of course, they have a role in relation to this. They have a role in ensuring that the regulator is sufficiently power, empowered and that energy companies are reined in um, and, and uh, that the system is there to uh, protect consumers, um, fair enough, there's competition in the market. But we've seen 
and people have lived with it and there's been very high profile cases in, in Louth and Mead um, the impact of the increase in costs of, of electricity and of energy we've seen uh, some providers increase uh, costs uh, on eight separate occasions um, whilst at the same time we know that wholesale energy prices have reduced by in the region of 65% since mm. last summer and we haven't seen one reduction at the but same the, time the, the, the argument has been though that they buy in bulk and uh, the, the gas or electricity that you're using today may be based on wholesale prices that date back months. Yeah, that, that's that's their argument and uh, because of the weakness of the regulator we have to take them at face value in relation to it. I don't take them at face value uh, in relation to it because um, they, they also announced their, their annual profits and they are spectacular profits, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, record profits, profits that are, you know, are have never been seen before in some companies that are you know over 100 years old so it's very clear uh, and I think it's agreed by everybody that the the energy market post the, the the war in Ukraine is broken there needs to be intervention and our criticism of government here is that they have stood in the face of intervention and dragged their feet in relation to intervention and now are acting as commentators whereas we're saying government have a number of levers uh, there's a windfall tax they could and should introduce the windfall tax that they're going to introduce is weak and actually you know incredibly and we've spoken about this before Michael will miss uh, uh, much of of 2022 when uh, when gas prices were at their highest and energy companies were making particularly renewable energy companies because we're getting paid the price of gas despite the fact that they were uh, generating renewables um, we're going to miss uh, practically all of, of 2022. The only month that will be captured in, in the government's windfall tax is the month of December. And if you remember back, July, August, September, um, prices were literally through the roof and, and many, many energy companies increased their prices twice over that, that period of months. Uh, the other thing we, we think, because of the absolute chaos within the market, we, we, we still believe that the time is right for an electricity price cap to give people the, the clear uh, assurance uh, of, of what the future holds in relation to, to electricity bills. And we won't have you know, pensioners exposed to uh, bills in excess of €1,000. Of um, and and uh, as you said, the regulator needs to be empowered to hold energy companies to account because it's very clear uh, from the commentary of various government ministers that they are not doing that. Okay, but the government has been giving money back to people, these energy credits. Uh, is that not just a, a different uh, approach? Like if you take the profits of Electric Ireland, which were staggering, 847 million euro. Uh, that resulted in a higher dividend for the government, didn't it? Which allowed it the flexibility to be putting money directly into people's accounts. It, it did. Um, and, and, and again, we've, we've spoken about this before, but Electric Ireland and the ESB are, are an example, but they're the exception in the Irish market. Uh, it's the the private operators that don't return a dividend to the, to the Irish taxpayer or the Irish government instead return a dividend to shareholders scattered all over the world uh, um, that's you know that's the uh, that's what what we need government to to capture you know so there as as i said um 
these are companies that operate with uh, a reasonable expectation of profit because of the war in Ukraine, because of the design of the energy market. They're producing in particular renewable energy, wind and solar, and getting paid the price of gas when the price of gas was literally off the charts. Uh, you know, they, they, they were, uh, those companies are receiving profits that they had never experienced before or never expected uh, and and we believe it's it's unreasonable that they would uh, capture those profits themselves and that we need a stronger windfall tax that goes back into last summer and captures those huge profits from from those companies and you know fair enough allow them a reasonable uh, uh, margin How how have those companies responded though because uh, that is uh, uh, the fear I guess that you're interfering with the free market uh, but you make the point in your motion that there's been moves uh, on this front in Austria, France, the Netherlands, Belgium, Germany and Poland. And how have the companies reacted there? Well, there's there's two elements. One um, is, is in relation to the electricity price caps, um, which which we believe is a is a sensible approach at this stage, and, and it's really important to say because lots uh, there's been lots of of lazy commentary in terms of well it's writing a black blank check for for companies and sure it didn't work out in in, in Britain. What, what Sinn Fein is proposing is entirely different than was introduced in, in Britain. The risk with a, an electricity price cap is that it gives free rein to energy companies to charge whatever they want to consumers and the government or the taxpayer takes a hit. Um, well, we would introduce a windfall tax to put pressure on, on the electricity companies uh, that they, they wouldn't do that and couldn't do that and that we would capture any windfall tax. The other element is that it allows free rein for customers to use as, as much electricity as they want with, with, with reckless abandon, abandonment. Um, we would take the approach that the Germans and Austrians have taken and others um, to weight it. So essentially, we would look at your average electricity usage in the previous 12 months, and that's the piece where you would get the, the price cap at. Above that, um, it would be the, the, the normal market rate. So, so there would be measures on, on both si- sides there. Of course, you know, so there's the price cap element, and then there's the windfall tax element. I'll be straight, Michael. What, what the companies have done is they've tried to... They've threatened governments with legal action. They've railed against this. Um, you know, we've spoken before about the protections of, of these energy companies in European legislation, uh, trade deals, the Energy Charter Treaty. They want to protect their profits uh, and, and they're entitled to try and do that. But nation states and government are entitled, in my opinion, and uh, must, in my opinion, uh, uh, ensure that the the market works in the right way and that consumers are protected. And that's why we're supposed to have a government and we're supposed to have a regulator. But in both instances in this country, they're they're, they're failing in their their duty, in my opinion. And that's why we want these specific measures in terms of uh, windfall taxes, energy Mm -hmm. price caps, the carbon tax, but also strengthen the regulator so the regulator has some powers like in Ireland the regulator doesn't even have the power to uh, influence standing charges and we've heard that you know in the last 12 months and more in terms of what, what, what energy companies have been doing around around standing charges Okay, and your argument is that if all of this happened our utility bills would be far less or gas and electricity bills would be far less than what we've been paying recently uh, that's separate of course to the carbon tax because that's got nothing to do with uh, the energy providers. Uh, That's a a tax to save the planet. Are you against that? 
No, we're against the the approach that the government are taking in relation to the carbon tax, which is, you know, take the example of of the the, the price increases um, that that came in on the first of of. Uh, of May there. So on home heating oil, um, people who are hugely dependent on home he- heating oil and no alternatives, the same on a price of the, a bag of coal or a, or a bale of briquettes. Our criticism in relation to the carbon tax is that it's, uh, it's punitive and it's unfair and it comes w- at, a, at a time when people don't have alternatives. So we've argued... For example, in relation to people who are dependent on solid fuel, people who are dependent on on kerosene, very many people in Louth and Mead um, will will be using uh, 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 kerosene. Yeah. That there that, that there should be direct schemes to support them to transition to lower carbon alternatives. Um, and well, also there are. To, There's all these retrofitting schemes, and uh, if you're getting these huge bills through the door, would that not make you stop and think maybe I should be getting a heat pump or or uh, improving the bare in the house so that I don't have to pay for all of this. Yeah, but uh, uh, first of all, we'd say that the, the schemes are designed in such a way, and this is our criticism of, of government, the schemes are designed in such a way. So if you look at it, the warmer home scheme, um, there's a, a two-year waiting list. Uh, only uh, 3% of those homes that are insulated are actually brought to a B2 standard, um, which is the requisite standard, 500,000 uh, by, 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 by 2030. So it's, it's, it's very piecemeal, we would say, uh, for those people who don't don't have access to means, um, completely inadequate. And then on the other hand... They're, 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 that's the scheme where you don't pay, the state... That's, for, that's the free scheme, the yeah. yeah. And, then, yeah. and then the other scheme um, is is essentially available to people with access to, to significant funds. Um, so there's a whole cohort of people in the middle, um, and, and there are very many people who... They're, they're all exposed to carbon taxes, but they see no benefit at all in relation to it. Whereas what, what, what Sinn Féin would say, right, we'd raise the money in a different way. So, for example, um, by you know penalising people who are using huge amounts of energy, the government do the opposite. They, use, they introduce a large energy user subsidy, so they actually subsidise people who are high energy users um, instead, of, instead of actually uh, penalising them. The likes we've given examples like a private jet tax. You know, the... the the, there is an unfair distribution in terms of those people who are um, uh, living carbon-intensive lives, uh, but the carbon tax itself is rudimentary, it's flat, it's across the board, it's, it, it's penalising people who don't have alternatives. We believe there's a fair way to raise the money. Actually, the, the state, uh, g- given the, the, the budget surpluses that it's projecting, uh, you know, potentially has the money there to really front load and supercharge its uh, transition to a low carbon economy instead of this incremental depending on a carbon tax that is punitive, uh, punishing people for a bag of coal, a bale of briquettes or a fill of kerosene mm. when they don't have an alternative. Okay, we'll leave it there. Your motion will be debated in the Dáil Chamber this evening and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today to tell us about it. That's uh, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on the Environment, Darna Rourke, who is a TD for Me East. Michael Reed on LMFM. The former American president, Donald Trump, is expected in Dunbeg today to visit his Trump International Hotel and Golf Links. It'll be a short visit by all accounts, but a significant one locally. Let's uh, go there with Fianna Fáil Senator uh, Timmy Dooley, who is from Clare. And a very good morning to you, Timmy, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. I take it Mr Trump will receive a warm welcome. 
Good morning, Michael. Um, I, I expect he will from his staff uh, at the at the Trump International facility. He employs his company employ a lot of people, as you know. Back a number of years ago, uh, the facility there um, was losing money and had lost. I think a senior investor maybe had gone bankrupt and. Uh, the Trump Organization came in and they bought a distressed asset at what I believe is, you know, was a good value. Um, it has done well for them. So I think it has been a relationship that has worked both ways uh, in the sense that the local people have, have found continued employment. Those that wish to use the golf course have continued to have a good facility. And the Trump International Organization have made, I, I would expect, significant profits um, and certainly the value of their asset has increased in the intervening period. So it has been a relationship that worked well. Now, of course, you pose that or you, mm. you put that beside uh, Donald Trump, um, the politician. And I think there are lots of people, including myself, <clears throat> who have no truck at all for the divisive politics uh, that he um, engenders, particularly in the United States. OK, just interesting uh, that you're talking about the profits of uh, the hotel and uh, the golf links. Uh, the Irish Times reporting today that it's run-up accumulated losses of $16.7 million since it was incorporated in 2014. Yeah, but I think they paid about $15 million for it at the time uh, and they've made significant investments. So, look, I'm not a, I'm not mm. a financial investment ex- expert, but they wouldn't be still there if they were losing money. They may be posting losses based on further investment that has gone into the upgrade of the facilities, which... Uh, said to be tens of millions. Uh, and uh, the remuneration for staff uh, is said to have uh, reached uh, a bill of €4.8 million. Euro. That's uh, 137 employees that are working. Yeah, well, you see, there's, there's, there's long-term employees, there's people who work year-round, and then there's the seasonal ones, which works really well, no more than any hotel. I mean, look, there are hotels dotted along the coast. There's the Armada Hotel up in Spanish Point owned by the Burke family, John Burke. Um, you know, does equally good work for his staff and his people. So I, I don't get overly excited about uh, the Trump organisation mm. and the fanfare that they bring. There are other very significant hoteliers who um, provide very good business and, and they're kind of lost in all of this and they just continue with the work that they do. But look, it's a facility... Mm. It provides good employment, um, and I think it works well for both sides. If it didn't, the well, well, what about Donald Trump's wall? Uh, that obviously means uh, something different uh, along the Mexican border than it does to people in Dunbeg. Yeah, I, I, I think he was he was um, he was a product of his own success internationally there that attracted a lot of attention. Um, there has been defensive walls built around golf courses along the western seaboard, up in La Hinch. Uh, and elsewhere um, that didn't attract the same negative attention from observers or detractors, if you, whatever you want to call them, that, that objected to it. Um, I would have been supportive uh, of a defensive system put in place to protect the asset that's now there. Um, it is a significant um, asset. It's a significant golf yeah. course. It attracts significant tourism to the region and I think it would be the right thing to protect it. But look, and their, 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 their concern is coastal erosion taking away the 18th hole uh, and Borplanola's uh, concern was uh, that if you redirect the sea you'll have coastal erosion ruining sand dunes. You know, Borplanola have made the decision, I'm not going to question that but I mean, Borplanola have had issues and continue to have issues so, you know that, that's, for, that's for another debate. Other golf courses have achieved that level of, of defensive systems and, you know, the whole, the whole western seaboard didn't, didn't fall apart. There is an asset there now. 
uh, very significant investment has gone into it. A lot of people's li- livelihoods depend on it. I certainly don't want to see the 18th hole uh, floating towards New York anytime soon. And it would be the right thing to do. Yes, of course, it, it, it has the potential to have impact somewhere else, but perhaps impact where uh, there would be less uh, difficulty or, or economic um, benefit to the, to the, to the community. We've, we've always got to be mindful when we look at planning issues. What's in the greater interest of the communities that, it, that, that these facilities serve? Like I know there was a very protracted planning process there about certain snail uh, that w- was in the sand dunes. And quite frankly, since the arrival of the golf course before Trump's time, my understanding is that the snail population there has increased very dramatically because of the way in which the dunes are cared for. So, so sometimes the impact of um, or the presence of economic activity or general activity can, can, can nurture that and fauna that, that some people get very exercised about. Right. Uh, we won't see the same kind of uh, security uh, that uh, we saw with the arrival of uh, Joe Biden with drains uh, being sealed and snipers on roofs and fellas talking I- into their collars and all of that sort of thing today, will we? No, um, and when, 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 when Trump previously visited the facility, he was, he was president, but it was in a private capacity, so there, were no, there was no public uh, occasion. There was significant security, but not to the level that would be afforded if it was a state visit that required him uh, meeting with us mere mortals in the locality. But, but there will be. I mean, it's right that the state would, would, would provide the appropriate level of security together with his own security. Um, that's a, okay, that's a, a diplomatic facility that's provided to whoever travels and it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's quite some time now since a former president of Russia Boris Yeltsin went fishing off Liscanner with Willie Callaghan um, all those years ago uh, and you know there was there was a level of guard of protection and there was a level of his own security at the time so you know it's, it, it, it's normal procedure and, okay. and there, may, there, yeah. there, may, there may be some heightened um, protests. I, I, I don't know. Well, he could very well be the next president of the United States, so uh, you'd have to assume uh, that there would be some level of protest given his uh, foreign yeah. policy. So. Yeah, no, no, look, at, there'll, be, there'll, be, there'll be protests regardless of what president from the States comes here, whether it's from the far right or the far left or from the middle or wherever. Um, there, there is something about American politics that engenders a level of interest right across the world. So, so there's always risk of protest, but I think I don't know his. I don't know his plans for the day, but I expect he won't be travelling back along the through Lissy Casey back to um, back to Dunbeg. I suspect he'll be he'll be flown from the airport right to his own facilities. So. He won't get the same kind of welcome uh, that he did in 2014 when he was uh, welcomed by Michael Noonan, and people will remember the red carpet and the lovely girls dancing at the crossroads to the tune of a harpist. Oh, people will remember that, all right. That's etched on the minds of all of us um, who, who, who thought it was uh, a rather bizarre event at the time. I, I think I think it was probably orchestrated by the Trump campaign, uh, and I think some people felt for it almost excited that somebody like Trump was investing in the region. Of course, you know, you've got to recognise people who are investing, that's great, but there's a lot of other significant business, both international and local, that have invested sums greater than that in the region, and they never saw it nor were offered that kind of fanfare. It, it had all the hallmarks of the launch of a presidential campaign, the red carpet, the then chairperson of the airport out to greet him. I mean, my God, uh, in hindsight, I think it was embarrassing for all. But look, it happened, and, and, and I don't expect to see that 
at least I hope not, uh, at Shannon Airport today, um, I think it would, it would rank her negatively with a lot of people. But, but, but no, no different to any tourist or any individual. He'd be welcomed, he'd be welcomed uh, for what he is, uh, the owner of a piece of property in, uh, in West Clare, um, uh, an international businessman um, and, and a tourist. Um, but I think there will be no welcome for his, or very, very little anyway, because there are always people who, 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 who support Trump's uh, divisive policies and politics, but there's there's very little support for that in Ireland or in Clare, I suspect. Okay, well, thank you indeed uh, for that insight and for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Timmy Dooley, a Fianna Fáil senator who's based in Clare. Michael Reed on LMFM. Thanks to Paddy Duffy texting us today saying the ideology of uh, the two main parties in government of laissez-faire is to blame for our little rip-off republic and has been since the establishment of uh, the state. We badly need a government that works for the majority of people, not just the market, says Paddy. John and Trim says, Michael, why are the people of Ireland not out marching or protesting about rip-off prices in supermarkets, hotels, etc.? It's all blamed on COVID or the war, the Ukrainian war. Will the war in Sudan or anywhere else uh, affect us from now on? It's time to stand up for ourselves. Uh, our J- John and Trim uh, sends this text and he says, it's a dear joke at this stage. Two tickets for Bruce Springsteen, €131 Euro plus service charge of 715 Who gets that or other charges that may apply? It's the usual wake up Ireland, says John and Trim. Thank you, John. Thank you, Paddy. 86 1-800-658 if you want to text us or WhatsApp 086-1800-658 phone us on 041-983-2000 email michael at lmfm.ie don't know if you were taken aback hearing the bulletins this morning but 18% of 16 year olds vape recreationally uh, according to Tobacco Free Research Free Research Institute Ireland uh, and this comes on uh, the back of uh, the decision uh, to ban vaping in Australia local Sinn Féin councillor Tomas Sharkey says that we need a full clampdown on the sale, sale of vapes to children. He's on the line. Good morning, Tomas. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, a clampdown on selling vapes to children. What does that mean in effect? Well, I think, first of all, we have to realise and, and make it very clear in the heads what a vape and what an e-cigarette is. It's a nicotine product. It, nicotine is an, is an addictive substance that means that you can become dependent on it. And if you're addicted to nicotine, you're dependent on it, well, then you're going to suffer all the side effects of, of an addiction. If you don't get enough nicotine when you're addicted to it, well, then you're going to suffer from your know, anxieties and all the stresses that go with it. Withdrawal now, symptoms. Uh, yeah, like all, of course, like alcohol, like gambling, like all other addictions and codeine, of course. Now, a vape and an e-cigarette, it makes nicotine into a vapour that you inhale. So if you go into a local shop here in Dundalk, Cantalaud, or anywhere across the North East, any of your listeners go into a local shop, you will not see a sign for a Marlboro cigarette or a Silk Cut or... or uh, 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 what a major cigarettes anymore because you cannot see cigarette packaging but there's a good chance that you're going to see a multicolour fancy looks like a sweet canter display of vapes available pinks blues purples yeah. yellows and all the flavours mm-hmm. and what you're going to see is you're going to see this marketing that is targeted specifically at young people to make it attractive to buy a vape. Well, it must be working. I mean, if close to one in five 16-year-olds are vaping, uh, it must be working. I mean, were you surprised surprised by that or do you see it uh, at school? 
Well, we see it everywhere because when we go, if anybody, any of your listeners go out in the streets and go out and about in the shopping centres or about, you see young and old vaping. The Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health uh, and Children's Health believe that if the current growth of vaping amongst young people continues Mm. at the same rate, within five years, every teenager will be a vapor. That means that if, if it keeps growing the way it is, every teenager will be taking nicotine. Okay. Well, uh, you, you tweeted yesterday we should clamp down a, 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 on uh, the sale. But, but what does that mean? Does that mean ban it to under 18s? Does it, it mean following the Australian example and banning it altogether except for people who have a prescription to go into a pharmacy and get this as a way of getting off cigarettes? Well, I believe that currently the, the current merchandising of, of these vapes is to try and get people addicted. So I think there that the current way that they're being sold should be banned straight up. And if nicotine, if there are people out there who are addicted to nicotine, that it, it should be like the, the Australian model where it should, be over, it should be in your chemist, it should be by prescription. And you should, if you have an addiction, you should be talking to your health professional to talk to your doctor for support and to get support in that. But at the minute, what we have in Ireland, and I've got eight products in front of me, oh. um, it costs €15.40 Euros 40 to buy 20 Marlborough Lights in the local shop. Mm. A vape can be bought for €5 or €6. Euros. Mm. You can get two for a tenner. Now, the first product I have in front of me is a Lost Mary. It's pink and yellow, and its flavour is triple mango. Mm. The next one is a watermelon ice. It's blue and pink. The next one is cherry ice, pink and, pink and I think it's red. Tropical punch is all red. The next one then is strawberry ice, and it's pure red. I've got a bottle here in front of me called Forest Berries. OMG, oh my God, Forest Berries. Mm. And I've got another doc... Uh, product in front of me, Peach Dream, five ninety nine in the local shop. And the the warning at the back of it says, if swallowed, call a poison centre. Now this is something that you'd put in your mouth and you would inhale, but it mm. says in the back of the box, if swallowed, call a poison centre yeah. or your doctor. Wash your hands thoroughly after handling. Do not eat, drink or smoke when using this product. Now, this is what young people are able to get freely. You go into any shop and you're going to see this very colourful, fancy branding, marketing. That is, let's be fair, let's, it looks like a stand of Haribo sweets. It looks like a, a shelf of jelly tots. And it is designed specifically to try and get young people hooked on these products. Right. If, and if what about the price? You were doing some price comparisons to 20 cigarettes, one vape uh, and I think you said five compared to about 15 or 16 euro for a packet of cigarettes. And did you get 20 smokes out of one of those vapes? I don't know. Because, okay. uh, Mike, I've never mm. been a smoker, mm. uh, thank God, but I don't know. But one thing that I'm also worried about is there's these disposable vapes and then there's the bottles of juice that you'd put into to the big machines. Mm. And the danger for young people is that they're mixing the forest berry juice with other oils or other substances into these and they're nearly making hubbly bubblies out of it. So you don't really know what's going into your lungs, you don't know what you're taking and we definitely should not be tolerating a situation where this marketing, the branding is targeted at kids. In the main street... Will they not get the men anyway? Would would you not create an illegal market uh, where they'd be sold without any form of regulation Uh, and you may be critical of the ingredients of these but they are regulated and you'd have to assume uh, that they've been tested and are deemed to be fit for consumption. 
they're nicotine and they shouldn't be consumed by anybody and the, the whole idea of putting nicotine No I know that, but you're talking about the, the, the prospect of going to the black market where there could be nicotine and God knows what rat poison or strychnine which you see with illegal drugs for example Well you see Mike illegal means illegal it means that if you're saying that it's illegal you're saying that nobody should be buying it and definitely nobody should be selling it to 18 year olds but when you're adding when you're adding nicotine with strawberry juice you're actually trying you're going out of your way to try and get young people hooked in Clembrassel Street in Dundalk the vape shop is beside the ice cream shop Mm. now there's nothing as blatant as that and I do think that we need to be following the Australian model of, of banning them. But I think we have to go back and for all of our listeners to, to realise what is on the back of these boxes. The warning at the back of these boxes says, if swallowed, call a poison centre. Hmm. Wash your hands thoroughly after handling this product. OK, Don't but you see, that, you, see that, you see that about a lot of things that you're not meant to swallow, and you're not meant to swallow these, so, you know. Yeah, well... <laughs> The, the things, the other things that you're not meant to swallow might be the might be the weed killer you have in the back gar- in in the back garage. But you're you're not putting that into a plastic device and sucking it in your through your lips, through your mouth, and down through your throat. Mm, I suppose there's a, a point in that, all right. Uh, but you wouldn't be concerned that uh, they'd be available anyway; that people would just get them on the black market. But at least we're sending it very clear there that we don't tolerate it. It's not acceptable and it, it's not something that should be done. But I do think that we are looking at a dangerous prospect where we're looking at a new generation of people, of young people, who are going to grow up addicted to nicotine. We worked very hard over the last 25 years to cut down on smoking, to cut down on the amount of people who are addicted to nicotine. My own my own family members have given up cigarettes and it, it's hard. Mm. It's very hard shaking off that habit and you won't sell this you won't won't sell this to young people will you I mean that message uh, I mean (laughs) they end up spending their money on on, uh, these e-cigarettes or vapes or whatever way you want to describe them they're very expensive uh, and they're habit forming they're very addictive and see and that's the problem mm. Mike they're not expensive they're not expensive it's it's much, the reason why cigarettes you, you can't buy a box of ten cigarettes is to make cigarettes too expensive that you could only buy them in boxes of twenty to get the price up. So, but now young people could have a fiver in their pocket and they can have a vape. Mm. But to buy twenty Marlboro, you need to have a twenty euro note in your pocket. Mm. So thought, everything's I, I, yeah. about making it as accessible as possible. Okay, but, but you really used to, you, okay, you used to be able to buy ten Marlboro, uh, and they they got rid of the ten packets. Uh, should, and why did we get rid of 10 times? Yeah, but should they be times? doing the same with vapes, for example, so that instead of buying one for five, you've got to spend 20 euro? No, I think we should be making them prescription only and getting them off your chemist with a letter from your doctor to say that this person has, has a dependency on a substance and we're going to manage it medically. Mm. And help them to get off that uh, substance, the addiction. Help, that, help, as help a, them as get off it issue. and yeah. prevent them get on it. All right, very good. Uh, leave it to people to respond if they wish to comment on your thoughts and indeed those of the Australian Government. Thank you indeed for joining us, Thomas Sharkey, Sinn Féin Councillor on Louth County Council. Our telephone number 041. 9832000 text or whatsapp 0861800658 uh, should vaping be banned uh, except for uh, medicinal reasons to get you off cigarettes email michael at lmfm.ie 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing, uh, the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation's annual delegate conference gets underway uh, today and we'll go to Killarney where over 350 delegates are meeting for the 104th annual conference. 50 motions are to be debated covering a wide range of uh, topics and on the line with us, Maeve Brehany, who's uh, the Assistant Director for Industrial Relations with the I-N-M-O. A very good morning to you, Maeve, and thank you indeed for joining us on at the programme uh, this morning. You're to have the new head of uh, the HSE in front of you tomorrow and the Minister for Health in front of you on Friday morning. Uh, and I, I take it while there's a lot of concern uh, about uh, the cost of living and other problems uh, that uh, people generally have uh, at the moment uh, amongst your members, it's overcrowding that's going to dominate the conference once again this year. Uh, Good morning Michael, yes absolutely Um, with over 45,000 patients this year alone have been admitted for treatment without a bed Um, and our professional nurses and midwives um, are are crying out for action um, to resolve that issue there's the impact on patients themselves but also on our members mental and physical well-being Um, and this is coming on the back of you know covid crisis after crisis um, across the health service and, and there's no let up and, and there's no sign of um, of that changing so we're going to have a very active conference this week calling on as you said um, the new CEO Bernard Gloucester and the Minister to, to take steps and actions that will alleviate that problem for our members and their patients. All right. Tell us what happened yesterday. You said it was predictable. There were more than 700 people on trolleys, people who were sick enough uh, that they needed hospital treatment in hospital, but there wasn't a bed for them in the hospital. No, there isn't. Our our system is absolutely overwhelmed. Um, And we have been saying this for for months. Not only are there not beds, but there there aren't the staff um, to treat them. So those staff shortages are having a direct direct impact on on patient safety. Um, And without that action, without action to um, increase beds and have a proper recruitment and retention strategy, bringing um, healthcare workers into the system, uh, this is going to perpetuate. Um, and to be honest, we've done a survey um, of our members this year um, and over 73% of, of staff have said that they've considered leaving their work area in the last month alone. So we've a health system that's already crippled in terms of staffing. And then you have people who are saying, actually, in the next month or year, I might not be here because it's unsustainable um, and, and they can't mm. tolerate the, the conditions any further. OK, but what happens on a, a Monday morning or on a Tuesday after a bank holiday that leads to so many people on trolleys? Well, I suppose there's different challenges over both night shifts and at weekends in terms of um, clinical um, care and, and, and access to decision makers um, to... Um, diagnostics over the weekend or to getting uh, people either um, discharged or treated. Uh, So it it just has that um, compounding effect. So Mm. we often talk about the overcrowding in EVs, but it's right up the wards. So where you would have had pathways for patients to go through, those pathways are completely blocked because the hospitals are full and bursting at the seams. So so that's where, from an ED perspective, it becomes um, the highlight in terms of trolley numbers. But it's right throughout the hospitals. It's on all of the wards at all levels. Mm. 
So if you're not discharged from hospital on a, a Friday evening, uh, you're going to be in the hospital uh, until at least the Monday morning, Monday afternoon, even if you could have been discharged on the Saturday or the Sunday, but there wasn't somebody uh, who could have discharged you. That's, that's certainly a challenge in terms of getting people discharged or, or having um, services over the weekend. And then um, more people waiting to be discharged on a, a Tuesday if it's a bank holiday, which leads uh, to so many people, uh, as you say, over the five bank holidays of the year. Yes, and it's not only the bank holidays. Like it's this, we have we see this and report on this every day of the week. So while you know the, the pinnacle numbers come maybe on a Monday or Tuesday post bank holiday or even post every weekend, uh, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, there's no good day anymore. Um, every day um, is a problem within the health service, and that's where we need um, that kind of activity on recruitment and retention um, and. I suppose we need action from the government um, to to resolve this issue. Yeah, as usual, the worst hospital in the country was Limerick, where 105 people were on trolleys. I can't imagine what it would be like to be. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. a patient or a member of staff there yeah no it's it's absolutely chronic and that's what people are saying in their professional opinion they're raising these concerns with managers and when we say managers it's nursing concerns that are happening at all levels um but they just don't feel that their concerns have been recorded um or that there's action um coming out of that so it, it's like as i said earlier it's that perpetuating issue mm. of not having sufficient staff or beds 
Well, we've had minister after minister over decades at this stage saying it can't be repeated uh, until uh, the worst figure comes uh, next time around. Uh, The worst figure was around 1,000 people on trolleys uh, that was recorded uh, this year. But there's always been these promises going back to 2006, wasn't it, when Mary Harney declared it a national emergency uh, with about 500 people on trolleys at the time, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and unfortunately that's become the norm and that is why at this conference we'll be calling for um, the legislation and underpinning of the safe staffing framework because it is the only methodology that um, would deliver the staff that are required to ensure patient and staff safety. Um, So without that legislation, this is going to continue to perpetuate. So it's important that everybody gets behind that and that we have legislation that means this cannot happen uh, because empty promises and rhetoric um, are, are not resolving the issue. Mm. How will you be able to decipher as to whether um, you're hearing uh, the facts of how um, things are going to change? I, I take it you're hoping to be presented with a plan of sorts, to put that a, another way, rather than uh, some uh, discussion about why it should be that way. Well, we have, we do have a very important plan. We do have the safe staffing framework that would deliver it. And that's what we're saying. That has to be underpinned by legislation because a plan without action or a plan without delivery is just a plan. So we need something that has consequences and accountability and that will protect our members. Mm. Indeed, there's a lot of motions uh, that uh, your members will be uh, debating over the course of the three days in Killarney uh, and the cost of living and housing, uh, obviously uh, part of uh, the discussion because it's something that's impacting on everybody in the country. We were speaking with a local TD uh, a couple of days ago who was telling us about a nurse who works in early Vlerts Hospital in Drogheda uh, and is living uh, above a licensed premises in in Dundalk uh, because of the cost of rent. It's impossible uh, to find somewhere that uh, is suitable and affordable for her and her four children and travelling to Drogheda all of the time. Now, I'm sure that's the sort of story that you're hearing uh, yourself from your members. It is. Like if we consider um, a newly qualified nurse or midwife, either at Dublin Corp, but this could really be replicated across the country, paying up to 1,800 euro um, in rent on a monthly basis. That represents about 75-77% of their take-home pay every month um, and that that just isn't sustainable so um, what our members are calling for is a, sitting wait, a city waiting allowance um, for nurses and midwives working in our city hospitals um, so if we want to see roles filled in the hospitals across our cities we have to see um, that, that type of an allowance been brought in um, and that is the only way that we can see um the ability to retain staff in these centres. We, we have this experience with um, domestic nursing, newly qualified nurses coming in from other countries. They're coming in and, and they're looking to Dublin and they're looking to Cork and going in other cities and it's just not sustainable. So they're moving to um, more rural locations, but that in and of itself is, you know, then, then we have issues around um, availability um, of properties, um, so yeah. so rent and housing is is a huge problem. I mean, very very attractive to go to Australia or Saudi Arabia, Qatar, one of these places. I, I take it, uh, given the conditions and the cost of living here for nurses. 
Yeah, and I think it's an important point that you raise, Michael, because it is the conditions and um, the cost of living. So, I mean, if you're if you're coming to Ireland and you're working in a system that's short-staffed, you're doing the work of one and a half to two nurses versus going somewhere where you can safely practice as a nurse and deliver patient care in the way that you trained and wanted to do. And you can also have a healthy work-life balance um, in terms of being able to afford to live in or around where you work without having a large commute. So it's definitely a more attractive offering, um, not only for international nurses, but for our own nurses. And there's always been that license to travel um, as a nurse. But unfortunately, um, the, the attractiveness of staying in the Irish system is, has just been eroded. Okay. Well, I'm sure we'll be hearing a, a lot from your conference and your members over the three days. Thank you, though, for joining us uh, this morning, Maeve. Much appreciated. Thank you, Michael. That's Maeve Brehany, who's Assistant Director for Industrial Relations with the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation, the INMO. Some comments now. Uh, one from a WhatsApp listener who says uh, they were in uh, super value yesterday in trim. Uh, a litre of own brand milk went up by four cent. Oh, compensation for reducing the cost of the bigger pack? A question mark, question mark, question mark, uh, asks our caller. Thank you. I'm surprised to hear that. There was such a fuss, wasn't there, over the weekend at uh, the cost of milk coming down. Uh, we've uh, another text uh, then uh, from Avril in RD who says, I agree with everything that Tomas Sharkey said about vaping. My own 16-year-old daughter got addicted to vapes. Each time I found them in her room, I threw them in the bin, but she continued to buy them. They're so cheap and so easy to buy. Uh, I think they should be banned completely. They're destroying our young people. Thank you, Avril, for that. Uh, another text Next, uh, from somebody who says, what if uh, that young person doesn't have the 50 euros for a doctor's appointment, entered the black market vaping with no quality control? Uh, in other words, that you'd get a prescription to get <laughs> your e-cigarettes through your pharmacist, so you'd have to pay the 50 euros for a doctor's appointment. That's a valid point, I suppose. Uh, it's a tough call, but all age limits, uh, limits and places of sale is required, says our caller. Well, thank you for making that point. Our telephone number, if you want to come to 041-983-2000, text or WhatsApp 86 Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM. LMFM. Well, if you've a spare room in the house, uh, you might think about renting it out. It wasn't possible for council tenants to do that, uh, but the so-called rent-a-room scheme is now being extended so that council tenants, like other property owners, can rent out spare bedrooms in their houses for up to €14,000 a year tax-free. Let's speak to the Chair of Mead County Council, Nick Killian, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you, Nick. Thanks for joining us, as always. Good idea or a bad idea? I think it's a great idea, and I'm delighted that uh, something very positive in housing has been announced where people who just want to rent a room or part of a house, particularly those that are single or some of those that are maybe on the elderly side of being uh, waiting on the housing list. So I think it's a very good idea, a very positive idea and I hope that many people um, not just in Leeds but around the country will take it up. And mm-hmm. I think for some people who possibly are living on their own in a council house that maybe might be getting older themselves, they might be glad of having somebody living in the house with them. And it also gives them the opportunity of earning uh, a certain amount of income and not having to pay any tax on it. I think the figure is 14,000. Yeah, which is a lot of money. It's 269 euro a week tax-free. Yeah, if you you 
put it like it's roughly a thousand euro um, a month. But if you look at the rents that are happening at the present time, rents are for a single person is around fourteen hundred. That's if you can get somewhere fourteen hundred to eighteen hundred. So for somebody who wants maybe maybe half a house, two rooms, and have the use of the kitchen uh, and bathrooms. It will suit some people. It won't suit everybody, yeah. obviously. And that's and the way these things always are. And therein, I suppose, lies the concern, if there is any concern, because uh, we've some bad examples how, of how the rent-a-room scheme has worked uh, with people renting out rooms to students uh, who are told not to use the kitchen uh, or the living room uh, and not to be bringing friends back a, at night and uh, other rules and restrictions put on how they live their lives. Well, there's always going to be rules and regulations when you're, you know, you, when you rent a property, you sign a contract and you're meant to keep to the terms of the contract. Similar applies to somebody uh, renting a room in a house. I, I think some of what you said there is a bit over excessive. But I just hope that yeah, a, com- well, a lot of, well, there's, there's, there's common sense has to prevail in, in this. Well, regulations are needed. I mean, if it's happening with students, uh, if, if they're paying out uh, that kind of money, €269 Euro a week, and then they're not allowed to use the kitchen, uh, it really calls into question the scheme if it's going to be extended without putting regulations in place. Well, I think the kitchen would have to be part and parcel of the use of the house, or the, the person themselves would have to put in some sort of a facility where somebody could cook food um, and feed themselves. Mm. So, like, it comes back to somebody having the, the, the if you like, the person renting, um, having common sense. But the landlord, if you like, in this particular case, uh, the, the the property who the person who's leasing it or renting out the property has to have some common sense as well. Now, we don't want to see people abused in any way, shape, or form on either side. Mm. Well, you know, the thing is that people are so desperate to find somewhere to live. Um, uh, if this is affordable, they may take it at any price in terms of the condition. Well, you know, I've seen bad conditions. I, I've visited properties myself over the last couple of months, and some of the conditions that I've seen um, were not good. And some landlords um, are not good landlords. Mm. They don't keep their places properly. They don't uh, maintain them in the manner that they should be maintained. Yes, they're taking very large sums of money in rent. Mm. But in this particular case, if it works. Uh, to the advantage of the person who's living, who, who's renting, who's in the in the property, and then somebody comes in to rent a room. Uh, I had a case there recently where it just happened that I knew both sides, and it's worked out perfectly. Mm. Oh, I'm sure it, it'll work very well for some, and not for others. As you said earlier, I was just thinking of a young man uh, that um, Independent TD Peter Fitzpatrick was telling us about last week. Uh, he's an apprentice who earns four hundred euro a, a week. Uh, and he'd been living somewhere, paying his rent and so on. Uh, he's been served a, a notice to quit. Uh, the only thing he can do at this stage is go to the Simon community. And you could easily understand somebody like that uh, who can't afford to rent an apartment because their prices are, are so ridiculous, uh, going uh, and taking a room for €269 Euro a week. Yes, and if it works out for them, ter- terrific. It's not going to happen in every uh, housing estate. Mm. Um, it will happen in certain ones where there's people li- who are living there can do- can afford to do it for themselves mm. uh, and if it suits their own lifestyle. And I think that's what ha- it has to be managed. I think the council has to take um, 
obviously has to approach this in a certain fashion. I think there has to be rules and uh, going back to rules and regulations. Mm. I think the local authorities are going to have to sit down and lay out rules and regulations in relation to it. And that's whatever applies from a local authority perspective uh, to the tenant coming in to rent uh, will apply to them also. So I think there's more before it just starts we have to put on our thinking hats as to how this is going to operate. And the local authorities will have to be kept informed. It just can't happen uh, on an ad hoc basis. Mm. The local authority will have to have, a, uh, not a say, but have to have an input of some kind into this particular situation. Because there is a scope for exploitation. Uh, because there is, uh, of course. I take it that there will be a lot of people interested in earning €269 Euro tax-free, no questions asked, legally, legitimately, uh, and so on, uh, but no rules or regulations other than you rent the room out to somebody and if there is somebody vulnerable like that young man I'm sure there'll be plenty of people who would be happy to say Look, we, we don't want to see it we just want the money paid at the end of the week that's it uh, and not a sound out of you uh, and good luck after that Well I'll be raising this with our own Director of Housing in relation as to how it's going to operate in County Mead and I hope every other Director of Housing right across the country does likewise and I think the Department will have to engage further before it actually starts to operate. Mm. It's badly needed, Michael, as you well know. Mm, you and mm, I have been talking mm, about mm. housing for <laughs> I don't know how long at this stage. Mm. But it's another scheme. But the one thing, if I could say to you, where we have so many schemes at this stage, it's about time the department drew up some sort of a booklet or took advertisements in the paper to tell us exactly what schemes are there. Mm. It's baffling at this stage the amount of... Um, new schemes announced uh, every day of the week there's something being announced mm. and it's very hard to keep up with because people are coming on into us the whole time as, as councillors looking for advice in a bad way and you're, we're trying to give out the advice but sometimes we don't have the proper information okay. so the department have to do an information exercise on housing and uh, letting and everything like that in general and the sooner the better Well people may have moved into a three or four bedroom house years ago the children have grown up and they've moved out and so there's an empty room or empty rooms at, at this stage and uh, the Department of Housing says that because of that there's about 14 to 28 thousand houses that are under-occupied in this country in other words where there's spare rooms would you be concerned at all about uh, vulnerable people on the other side of, of this uh, of agreement. And that's why I'm saying the local authority yeah. has to have an input into it. Because there could because be elderly are, people who are rubbing pennies together saying €269 Euro a week would be great, like, you know, but when you bring somebody else into the house, that can change not just the dynamic of the house, but it can change people's lives, can't it? Of course it can. And I go back, repeating, it has to be monitored, it has to be managed, and the local authority has to have some say and input into into how this is going to manage, because there are vulnerable people out there, as we know, who are living on their own at the present time. Wonder caught by the fact that the, uh, the, the magic, if you like, of €269 Euro a week as an income, and secondly, the possibility of having somebody living in the house with them, because maybe they're... they're uh, partner has passed on or they're living on their own for whatever reason and they have to be minded and we have to have uh, an eye as to what's happening. So there's work to be done before this is uh, finally brought into use. Mm. It's a different situation in the, in a private situation because people can manage their own um, 
their own tenants that come in to rent with them. But we, as a local authority, have to have a say in this. Mm. And, I, and I certainly would be looking to have to make sure that we have a say and an input, a direct input, as to how this operates in County Mead. OK, and given uh, the scale of the housing crisis, would you be worried that people might be guilted into renting out a, a room when they'd really prefer not to? I don't think so. I think if somebody wants somebody to rent it out to somebody, they'll do it, and if they don't, they won't. Mm, okay. Well, that's maybe maybe that's a, a simple answer, but I don't think if somebody doesn't want to do it, they're not going to do it. Okay. Well, it is interesting, and it will work very well for some people and not so well for other people, uh, but there is a, an opportunity there for people as well. There is. Uh, but again, has to be managed and has to be managed properly. Yeah, fourteen thousand euro a year tax free is not to be sneezed at. It's and is not no in yeah. this day and age, and particularly if somebody living on their own and maybe they're on a pension yeah. uh, and they're struggling, you know, trying to make ends meet. And there could be a great uh, opportunity for them and a great opportunity for somebody yeah. who's looking at, at apartments for fifteen hundred, two thousand euro. Exactly, and mm. uh, it could work. And particularly, you know, people who are on their own themselves I'm thinking of the people that come in to me who are on the housing list and who are in their 40s and 50s and living on their own I think just people like that where going into a situation of renting a room um, could bring good joy to both the person that's renting the house and to the person um, that's living in the house at present Okay, Nick, thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme today. That's independent councillor Nick Killian, who is the chairperson of Meath County Council. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now we've had uh, a number of uh, discussions uh, about LGBTQ plus books available in libraries for 12 uh, to 17 year olds and we've heard two sides uh, of uh, that argument up to this point uh, I suppose we've been contacted by Jana London uh, who has been campaigning against these books in the libraries uh, and uh, she wanted to tell us why. Good morning to you Jana and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. What, what why are you against these books? Yeah, there's really two reasons. Uh, from I'm founder of the Natural Women's Council. I work very closely with uh, a group of about a couple hundred women, grandparents, therapists, teachers and lawyers, as well as with the Irish Education Alliance, Lawyers for Justice, Parents' Rights Alliance. And the, 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 the Natural Women's Council? Natural Women's Council. Well, well, what's, what's, what, what's a natural woman? Well, a natural woman, I, I was born a natural woman. I love my body. I'm happy being a woman. And the other part of natural is the natural health perspective. A lot of people in my group, uh, we do believe in treating ourselves and our families natural health remedies, and we've managed to stay very healthy over the last few years, standing okay. strong, tall, and happy. So, but, two, but, two different pieces. But you, 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 you obviously uh, believe that there's unnatural women then, do you? Uh, I don't believe that a man identifying as a woman will ever be a woman. Anyone born with a penis in my eyes is, is not a woman. You can't change biological sex. But you can. Can you? Well, you decide to respect it or not, but yes, absolutely you can. can I, uh, let me ask you a question. How many men who I've identified as a woman and gone through, whether it's the, the medical or surgical procedure, how many of those men have gone on to conceive and deliver a child? I don't believe there's any. Right. Uh, so you don't uh, respect their wish to uh, be identified as a woman? They can identify how they want, but it doesn't mean they're ever going to be a natural born woman. Just So, because so when you say they're unnatural, uh, there's something weird about them, is there? 
Uh, I, I wouldn't. I never said weird. Yeah, but what I'm saying is you, a woman well, is born, well, not worn. A woman but when you say born. somebody is unnatural, it's derogatory. Okay, well, I don't believe a man identifying as a woman will ever be a, a woman. You can't change someone's DNA, their bones. If you put a hundred men on an island and they all became ashes, mm. so you're calling the, you're, you're, you're being you're, so so you're no you're being no no it's the same point you're losing but you're be, you're being derogatory. You're saying they're unnatural, but you're sa- you're saying they're unnatural, which is derogatory, isn't it? If that's how you feel, but let me ask you a biological question before we talk about the books, which is why I'm on. If you put a hundred men on a remote desert island, their bodies rotted, became ash, and an archaeologist came and identified those bones, they could tell that every one of those hundred bone sculptures were born a, a man. There, there's no bone of those men on that island that rotted that's ever going to be a woman bone. That's biology. So mm. I never used the word weird. I said that once you're a woman, you're always a woman. And once you're born a man, you're never going to change your sex and become a natural born woman. Yeah. So, so you're unnatural. And a man born so, with a penis. So, my children know that. So, so you are unnatural, which by definition is weird and derogatory. I don't believe it's derogatory to say someone cannot change their sex. I believe in biology. I studied pre-medic college, and I, I'm a fan of biology. But we can we can differ on that view. But I never said the word weird, so please don't put that into my mouth. Well, if you say somebody is unnatural, why am I wrong to interpret that to mean you're saying they're weird? Unnatural doesn't mean weird. If you look up the Cambridge Dictionary definition. But I do believe we're diverting, but I, I don't believe I, I don't believe a, a, a woman is worn. I believe a woman is born, and just because of but you've you've started you've, start, you've started a group saying we're natural, uh, and the point of calling your group natural is to highlight how you feel other people are, are unnatural. I also mentioned natural health. I'm a natural-born woman, and I will never be shamed for being a natural-born woman. I will never be shamed for conceiving my child, delivering my child, breastfeeding my right. child. And I don't believe in erasing the words woman or mother as well. Thank goodness that was reversed. Why, why, why did you not become a transgender? Why did I not? Yeah. Gosh, I never even, it never even crossed my mind. Why would I? I'm happy to be born as a woman. And... I have a boy who's happy as a son and a girl who's happy as a daughter. I don't know where the social contagion even started with making people feel that they're born in the wrong body. Mm. It's just I thought you'd read these books. Oh, I I read a lot of these books. And and you didn't decide to be a transsexual after reading the book? No, goodness. I'm very happy in the book. Would you expect your son or daughter to end up transsexual after reading a book? I believe this is the question I've thought a lot about is people say, you know, if children read these books, I was on the radio with Adrian Kennedy recently, and he said, do you think children can be influenced? And my response, absolutely children can be influenced. My little kids age four and seven still believe in the Easter Bunny, the Toothberry and Santa Claus. So if they were to read a book that reaffirmed that a boy can become a girl and a girl can become a boy, and some of these books are down to age uh, five and, and, and age 12, Absolutely, that child could be influenced. And you may have seen the Irish but, Times But you article. couldn't. Sorry? But you couldn't. Couldn't? You, you couldn't be influenced. I couldn't influence. And I would certainly hope that if someone told my boy he can become a girl, that he wouldn't be influenced. But not every child is as strong-rooted, uh, and not every child is taught to love their body. You may have seen the Irish Times article last October that said up to 90% of people in Ireland seeking gender services may have been autistic. So if you have a class of 30 children, what child do you think might be led down the path of wanting to change their body 
Well, into the opposite sex. Well, I, I'm not. I'm, 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 I'm vulnerable I'm, I'm, children. I'm not sure that anybody would, uh, after reading a, a, a book, if that wasn't the way they were thinking in the first place. Given your response, because you've told me very clearly, you wouldn't be influenced. You're you're intelligent uh, enough uh, to know yourself, uh, to understand am, yourself, and understand your body, was... and not not to be influenced after reading a book to suddenly become a man. I, why I why would anybody why would anybody do that after reading a book really if it's not the way question. they feel? That's a really good question. And I actually just came from three days at the Genspect conference in Killarney. And the what, what conference, heard, sorry? The Genspect conference down in Killarney. There was a conference um, that was held uh, over three days. It was a phenomenal conference. It was uh, hosted by uh, Genspect. Uh, Stella O'Malley is a psychotherapist. And they had about 20 experts from around the world fly in. And the most alarming thing that I heard and saw at the conference were those six, young, six children, adolescents, who at one point in their life thought they were born in the wrong body. They went through the change through puberty blockers, which have long-term damage. Some of them with osteo, you know, it can cause osteoporosis, etc. Most of the children going through the puberty blockers and sex changes will never have an orgasm or normal sex life. Mm. Those children made the decision to go through the change. They later regretted it, realizing, actually, you know, chopping off my breasts or my penis and taking chemical puberty blockers didn't make my problems go away. Now they're detransitioning, going through the reverse to go back to their birth sex. So there's such a high rate of children who are influenced, and it's the vulnerable children. You asked why would I? Why would okay. I want to be influenced? Ge- well, I'm that's well. Woman. I never heard of Genspect before, but I, I can see it's that it's a, it's a group that opposes gender affirming care for children. They they don't believe that children should go through puberty blockers because they're irreversible. Mm. Uh, one man at the conference uh, spoke. He, he's a gay man. There was lots of the, the group. A lot of uh, people who. Uh, were from our gay community there, and one man really mad. He said, "Puberty blockers are given to children." Some people, mm. and I'll talk about one alarming book: teaching kids how to order puberty blockers online and how to inject themselves. One man spoke up and said, "In his childhood, puberty was actually what was the solution for him, mm. whereas puberty blockers is actually stopping the natural solution of natural puberty." Okay, so, all right, okay. It's, it's very dangerous path for children to. T- to go on, they're irreversible. Why, 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 why do you oppose sex education? Oh, I don't oppose sex education at all. Do you not? Not at all, no. I went through sex education as a child, and I'm already teaching my age four and, and seven about how the Bible change because they ask. I believe in biological sex education. Mm. What I strongly oppose is what's coming down, which is promoted by the, mind you, by HSE and some trans rights groups like Tenny and Belong To, teaching down to age five that in primary school this is going to propose to come into primary school teaching a boy he can become a girl a girl who can be, can become a boy biologically you can't change sex and as a society we should be leaving these regressive ideas behind not reinforcing them in children we should right. never well, what, 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 what if a child um, what if one of your children uh, decided uh, that they were born uh, in the body of uh, the wrong gender and uh, they wanted to explore those thoughts, or any child for that matter, uh, and there was nowhere for them to explore those thoughts except to look on the internet. Yep, the internet, that's right. So I guess my answer to that is twofold. Is One, there will be a very small minority of children, who, very small, who go through gender confusion 
necessarily. Um, most of them grow out of it, especially with the normal puberty progression. But what if someone was confused? Maybe they were on TikTok. Maybe they were seeing those doctors promote. Yeah, maybe they should learn about it in school. Should they not? Uh, they should not learn about. They should not be uh, have this ideology taught in school because a child will believe anything a teacher tells them. A teacher is authority. These are the facts of life. Uh, but a girl shouldn't be taught they can become a boy. And a boy Why not? They, a because they can. They can't. They can't change. Sex. But they can. They can't be changed. They of can't. course they can. They can't. How many men get pregnant after the change? Put on a dress, lipstick, and how many men get pregnant when that happens? Not many, I know. Yeah, but they can, um, regardless. Okay, well, we can uh, and, disagree uh, that sex can be changed. Biological sex cannot be well, changed. Well, they, they can. I mean, you, I mean, you're not going to disagree. Um, you may describe it whatever you want, uh, that uh, they can change their anatomy so that uh, they're of a different gender, and that's uh, something that people can do relatively simply these days. And if young people are aware of that and they're interested in finding out about it, why should they be looking on TikTok or elsewhere? Why should they not get uh, the information uh, from... Uh, people uh, who you would have trust in. And who should a child, if a child has a mental, um, gender dysphoria is actually listed as a psychiatric condition. So if a child has a psychiatric condition, whether it's gender dysphoria or let's use anorexia, an eating disorder. Yeah. If a child has an issue with, they think they're on the wrong body or maybe they think they're really fat and they have anorexia. They should be talking to their parents, working with their family unit and experts. A teacher is not equipped to teach a child they can change their sex. Well, what if the child is is lesbian, attracted to the same sex? Yeah, what what if they are? That that happened. There's nothing wrong with being gay. There's nothing Mm. wrong with them. I was a tomboy. There was nothing wrong with a girl wanting to ride. I rode quad bikes through the sand dunes, mud running, and I didn't play with dolls. I was a masculine child as a girl, and I yeah. know many men I was friends with who are feminine. Nothing wrong with that. But why, 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 not, why not educate children about sex? Sex is okay. I agree with sex, biological sexual education, but what I don't agree with is this, uh, creating the social contagion across the, the schools that children can change. Should be, we should not reaffirm that they're burning the wrong body. Children should ta- be taught to be kind. My two children have never read sexually explicit books talking about the things in the, in the library. My children have never been made to think they're born in the wrong body. Mm. They are the two most kind, clever humans I've ever met at age four and seven. So when, when you're, well, um, that could be a different situation, I suppose. But um, when, you're opposed, when, you, when you oppose the SPHE uh, curriculum changes, uh, is it just the transgenderism that you're opposed to? Absolutely. The, uh, it's back to, if someone was anorexic and said, you know, I think I'm fat. You would never say, you're right, actually, let's go give you that gastric bypass surgery and just stop eating. You just, you just wouldn't do that. What you would try to do is teach the child one-to-one in their family environment or working with a therapist or an expert. Mm-hmm. You would work with them one-to-one. And most of these children, actually, and the ones we've met at these transitioners, they realize when they go through puberty and they realize mm-hmm. in their life that may have been... Well, a, because there's such prejudice uh, in the world, uh, I, I'm not sure how many children would be forthcoming with uh, those thoughts. But um, when, when you oppose the library books, is it just the books that relate to transgenderism that you're opposed to? No, there's two sets of library books. And unfortunately, I've read too many the last few months. I think my, my, I need bleach to, to pour in my head. Um, there's two different types. There's one that are very highly explicit explicit books. Um, some of the Juno Dawson ones, very highly explicit. There's other books talking about 
Uh, I don't even want to call them books. I actually think they're more like dirty manuals fetishizing children. Why does a 12-year-old need to know about fisting and anal sex and blowjobs and handjobs at age 12? So the sexualized content because is it's one sex. issue. What's the age of consent in Ireland? <laughs> the age of consent is 17, uh, but children will, children have sex and children are interested in sex and children are looking at sex all of the time, very graphic sex on their phones. The phones, that's, that's another argument we can talk about as well. I have strong views on, on that issue. Um, so the books, they're dirty manuals, sex fetishizing children, for example. At age 12, you know, maybe they ask about sex. But I don't believe that fisting and anal sex and eating poo should be part of teaching a child about sex. When my children are ready and learn about sex, I will be teaching them that sex happens between two adults. Okay, so you're opposed to sex education. Not sex education. That's what people do. (laughs) Whether you do it or not, that's what people do. And that's, that's what sex education is if you're going to talk about sex, if that's what people do. I just, I disagree strongly. I'm, I'm almost, uh, I'm in my mid forties and I can, I can categorically say that I have never even heard of this until I read these books, and I don't I'm want. Sorry, you're breaking up. I'm, I'm sorry, you're breaking up. What's that? Oh yeah, I, I said I'm, I'm in my mid forties, and I I first learned about fisting through reading these books in the twelve year old section. All right. Do, so 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 did you take so so did you take it up after reading it? Uh, no, I don't want somebody's fist in my bottom. Thank okay, you. Okay, <laughs> some, pe- some, pe- some people do, uh, but uh, I mean they decide that themselves whether they've read a book or not. We shouldn't be teaching age 12. This actually, let me quote the Child First Act. There's two pieces which this does clearly violate. Uh, The Children's First Act of 2015, you're probably familiar with that, yeah? Please don't quote that because uh, you know as well, you know that that, uh, a child under 12 is placed in uh, the child membership category in the absence of parental consent. These books are in the age 12 section. I've gotten, I've confirmed with the library that a child who's 12 with their library card can go in and take these books out. I have that in writing. Age 12 can take these books out, talking about the things that I just referenced. That is not age appropriate. And when you said, please Why? don't quote... Why is it not age appropriate if it's sex? So you, you, you say you're for educating children about sex, uh, but when... Sex is different than talking about these fetishes that people have. Fetishes like anal sex and fisting and blowjobs and handjobs for age 12 is in no way appropriate. Sex, that is not sex in the eyes of you know, biological sex in a respectful relationship. You know, that should not be normalized for age 12. Who would want to normalize such things for age 12? I, I know some groups would. <laughs> the, the words are to P and <laughs> I won't mention that, but I was going to quote the Child First Act, which you dismissed, and it's the law that you voted on as an Irish person. Mm. So why can't we quote the law? And how okay, quote the, quote, quote the Child Act, yeah. yeah. Thank you. So there's two pieces of the Children's First Act of 2015. It was passed in a referendum by the Irish people. The first one is under sexual abuse. And under sexual abuse, it says, quote, it's the third bullet down, showing sexually explicit material to children, which is often a feature of the, quote, grooming process by perpetrators of abuse. Oh, no, you're pushing it down. And that's why I said not to quote it, because uh, these are books that are selected by people who have expertise in the area. Uh, The librarians, uh, in accordance with each library service collection development policy, uh, there are people uh, who uh, are looking at 
at this material uh, on uh, whether they're age appropriate or not and they are in consultation uh, with parents and guardians on an ongoing basis. And what was the consultation that you just referenced? You seem to know about that. Tell me what consultation Well, that's, was a, sta- that's a statement, as you know, from uh, the local government management agency and I'm sure that parents are, are, are very good at, at expressing their views uh, to the LGMA rather than to librarians who are going about their daily work. Yeah, we, we've been actually silenced by many of the agencies who are meant to protect children. We're in the process of doing Freedom of Information Act requests to get the minutes from those meetings as well as signatures on the books that they, that they were vetted, apparently. We have been dismissed by the county council. Parents going in to file a complaint against the books have been dismissed and labelled such things as far-right Nazi book burners. When we're not suggesting we ban books or burn books, we just want to move to the adult section. Uh, we've been called homophobic when many of these books are actually heterosexual books. It's simply the content. So we don't accept those labels. Mm. The Children's Ombudsman dismissed it and said it didn't really harm a child. So my question is actually going to be to the insurance company. That's our next letter. Right. The insurance company of these libraries. So I'm a 12-year-old girl and I go in the library and I pull out the book that yeah. teaches me how to use Grinder, a dating app for age 18. In the age 12 book, it teaches me how to use the dating app. I put my photo, it tells people my location, oh, I know, and then yeah. I, I go meet an adult. Who but children want this information, and we know from, we know, we, we know from our own childhoods that children ended up pregnant, uh, unwanted pregnancies. So, or, or, let me finish the, the risk assessment. I'm just talking about the risk. Please just let, give me the respect to finishing the sentence, please. So a child goes on the dating app, uploads a photo, meets an age 25-year-old man, and gets raped from something she learned in that library book. Who's accountable? Okay. Who's, a, who's accountable for that? Who's, is the risk assessment done on these books if my child goes Yeah, the risk home? assessment is done because they're chosen by people with expertise, librarians uh, who uh, understand an awful lot about this, and they also understand an awful lot of how uh, sex was treated in this country when we didn't talk about it to our children. We wanted to wrap them up in cotton wool. And talking about sex is okay. I'm not disagreeing, and I've been very clear that sex education is Some sex, you say. Some sex. Others you call disgusting fetishes. Exactly. Yeah, but that's an opinion. That's an opinion. If you want your 12-year-old daughter to learn about fisting and blowjobs, that's a problem. Yeah, well, they will, one way or another. That's the point. And let's talk about the internet, because you mentioned that. I have views on that as well. Well, they're friends. They don't have to go on the internet. Oh, internet is friends, I know. Somebody said to me on one of the radios uh, that I was talking to, they said, oh, well, sure, they're going to see it on the internet anyway. We might as well see libraries. However, the Library Act, as well as the Children First and the EU and United Nations Act, does not allow this material in front of children's eyes. So to say that they're going to see it in the li- in the internet anyway, show them in the library, that to me is like saying your kid is going to go to the disco Saturday night and they might do drugs. So you might as well give them a little line of coke at home. I mean that that argument. Or you might talk to them about it uh, and discuss the pros and cons, and uh, then uh, see if they make the right decision. Jana, I've run out of time. I have to leave it there. Thank you for your time. Thanks for joining Thank us. You Thank you much. for contacting us. That's uh, Jana London, who's uh, campaigning about against these library books. Uh, a lot of texts into us uh, as well, but our time has run out, as I say, for today's programme. Maggie McGuire Research. Chris Murray was in the Control Tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie